The following content is for mature audiences only and may be seen as graphic and is not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Infertile Millennial, a podcast where we chat all things infertility, IVF, and surviving your fertility journey. I'm Emily Orlando, reminding you that you're not alone. Let's chat fertility. Welcome back to another episode of Infertile Millennial. Today, we have special guest Monica, who is going to be sharing her heartbreaking story about stillbirth, miscarriage, mental health, and her severe depression. But before we get into it, I thought that this would be the perfect time to bring up mental health and talk about how infertility impacts our mental health. I think for me, and maybe those of you who are listening who are also going through infertility or fertility treatments, mental health is not really something that I thought about when entering this world of infertility and IVF and fertility treatments. My thought process was that as soon as I started IVF, it was going to be a beautiful outcome. We'd get our baby and everything would be sunshine and rainbows. And that's just not the case. And even if that is the case for you, along the way, there is going to be a lot of emotional stress that comes along. And so that is what today's episode is sort of centered around, is mental health uh, after failed IVFs, after miscarriage, stillbirths, everything like that. Let's talk about mental health a little bit. Stress, depression, and anxiety are described as common consequences of infertility, and that's probably not too shocking to many of you listening, whether you've gone through it or not, it seems like they might go hand in hand. There's going to be stress. There's going to be anxiety. There might even be a little bit of depression along the way because this is a pretty serious thing that we're going through. There's a lot of emotions that we're dealing with. And sometimes we're just not even aware of what emotions are actually going through us because we are going full speed ahead, trying to get to that light at the end of the tunnel. And we're not realizing, Hey, I'm feeling really anxious right now. Or I'm feeling really depressed. Or maybe you do. Maybe you're very aware that this entire journey has caused a lot of anxiety and depression for you. And you might be feeling like, is it just me or does everyone feel like that? A number of studies have found that the incidence of depression in infertile couples who are going for fertility treatments is significantly higher than fertile couples, with estimates of depression in the ranges of 15 to 54%. And a 1998 study found that 13% of women had suicidal thoughts after a failed IVF attempt. Now, that news might be surprising to you because you might be wondering, why would somebody be upset about a failed IVF attempt? And mainly because a failed IVF attempt means that we either lost our embryos because maybe they didn't make it to day five blastocysts. Maybe they failed to implant. Maybe your transfer was canceled altogether. There is a lot of grief and loss that comes with feelings like that, that comes with that experience of a failed IVF attempt. I myself didn't even realize that I was going through a grieving process during my first IVF round when my embryos failed to implant. I felt like maybe I was being overly emotional, that I was dramatic or crying about nothing because I hadn't actually lost a baby. I lost embryos, which is very normal. There are failed IVF attempts, but I thought that that was weird or wrong or that I was just overreacting. And the truth is I was going through a grieving process, but we don't often get talked to about grief after failed IVF attempts. That's really something that your doctors don't prepare you for very much. And nobody really talks about that, that low feeling of that just hopelessness that comes after a failed IVF attempt. So when I hear these numbers of 13% of women had these thoughts, I can completely understand that. It is a very difficult time. It's a confusing time because it's, it's hard for you. You're not grieving the loss of a miscarriage, but you did lose something. And so it's a confusing time for a lot of women. You are going through grief after your IVF attempt. Everything you're feeling is completely valid. Another study showed the rates of attempted suicide increased in women who experienced fetal loss. So the risk of a completed suicide was higher in women who experienced a stillbirth, miscarriage, 
or termination of pregnancy than in those who had a live birth. And don't get me wrong, there is an increased risk of suicide of women who have actually had healthy babies. There's a lot of uh, mental health issues, depression, and suicidal issues that circle pregnancy. I mean, you guys, pregnancy takes a lot on your body. Imagine losing the baby that you had inside of you, but you still have all the same hormones and things going on chemically in your body that a woman has who also just gave birth. It's the same feeling, but you lost something. So, I mean, this to me, it's not surprising at all. Another thing that I found interesting that I can totally relate with is that anxiety has also been shown to be significantly higher in those who are going through infertility. Studies have shown that infertile couples experience significant anxiety and emotional distress. And boy, can I connect with that. Infertility, especially fertility treatments, are just one giant roller coaster of emotions. Things do not go the way that you plan. There is a lot of anxiety of, okay, the next step I get here, once this is done, I can I can relax. And then, oh, but then once this is done now, I can relax. And truly, as you're gonna see that we talk about in this episode, when you sign up for fertility treatments, you are kind of signing up for anxiety and emotional distress. There is so much that happens. There is so much worry that starts from day one. You are signing up for a very difficult thing. It's not just as easy as going in and getting pregnant. There's so much that happens. And so I can definitely relate to the anxiety that comes with infertility. When a round of fertility treatments proves to be unsuccessful, for instance, women and couple can experience deep feelings of grief and loss, just like I talked about. Even if it's not successful and if you have a miscarriage after both times, I experienced a deep sense of grief and loss that I needed to heal from and kind of move through and and, and not get over, but, but move on and get past. And in fact, one study of 200 couples who visited a fertility clinic found that half of the women and 15% of the men said that infertility was the most upsetting experience of their lives. Amen, mama. (laughs) It has been such a roller coaster. It is so filled with emotions that I just never knew that I would experience. And so that's why I think it's important to discuss mental health, um, especially with our guest, Monica. She's going to be talking about her heartbreaking, I believe it was a 39-week loss, and... My heart goes out to her still, just I can't imagine the pain she went through. Before we get started, I wanted to put a warning that the following content is for mature audiences only and may be seen as graphic and not suitable for all listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or head to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And without any further ado, please welcome our guest, Monica. First of all, I just want to say after reading your story, I was just so blown away by everything that you've been through. Such a long journey. You said it was 15 years, right? uh, Actually, you know, from my first uh, IVF up to now, it's actually about 15 years. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? First of all, where you're from, when you guys got married, when you decided to start trying? Okay. Yes. So... My name is Monica Vivas, for the ones that don't know me. I originally, I am from Colombia, from Bogota, uh, but I live uh, in New York for the last 18 years. Um, I met my husband, it's funny, in Match.com uh, 18 oh, years yeah. ago, yes. <laughs> I was in Colombia, actually, and he was living here in the States, but he's from Israel. So what happened is so funny because... Um, I speak English since I was in kindergarten, you know, in Colombia, my parents, they are from a medium class, they work very hard, and their goal was always, you know, for some reason, they saw that it was very important for me to learn another language, Uh, especially, you know, when I when we're born in third world countries, the opportunities are very limited. They always come through the age and your experience. So I was there. my dad always was like, you know, you take advantage of your language, go to the States, whatever. And I never thought to come here because it was so difficult. You know, me, Colombian single with a career speaking English, forget it. I knew they're going to say no. They're going to think right away, which it's very fair. I'm going to come to work. But listen, God have different um, story written for me. I met my husband and then he traveled to Colombia to meet me. 
and he had an investor visa and that was the the good thing because for that type of visa the government here should give a visa to the wife or children if they have so we married in colombia three months after we met and then uh, a month later i was here and i'm gonna be very honest with you before i met him i wasn't too much into marriage i wasn't into kids and not because the, the, the reason was I thought the world was very crazy and look how it is now. It's even worse. Yeah, even worse. <laughs> even worse. <laughs> so I met him and he already had a, a daughter from a previous marriage. And, you know, she used to come and visit and kind of that woke up that uh, feeling that I want to have my own child. Because for me, it was very hard for seeing Daniela every time that she needed to go back with her mom. Like it was like taking a piece of me. So we start to to try and I took it for granted, Emily. Like I come from a very big family, especially from my mom's side. They were 18 kids, nine girls, nine uh, guys from same mom and dad. And all my cousins, they start to, you know, like get pregnant just with the blow of a kiss. My mom got pregnant at 21. And I say, you know what, I'm going to try. That's it. Next month, the period is not coming or maybe it's going to take three months. And it didn't happen. So after trying for about six months, I start to think, you know, he has a daughter. I supposed to come from a very fertile family something is wrong with me i was 32 at the time so when i went to the gynecologist you know he was like yes let's go i'm gonna check you know usually couples try for a year sometimes stress anxiety you know can cause that so try for another six months we see what happened then if not you come that's what we did came back put me on clomid you know what is the protocol when start these kind of issues with infertility he put me on clomid nothing happened and then we jump into all the tests, blood tests, hormones, AMH, you know, for, for PCOS, all of that. Everything came negative, means I was okay. And eventually, you know, he sent me to do an esterosalpingogram because he said if something is wrong, it has to do with your tubes or you have endometriosis or there is something with your uterus that maybe is not right. And we did it and we found out that I didn't even know through all these years that we had, I had endometriosis stage four. And the scar tissue caused by that blocked completely both my tubes. So our next step was trying to open them through laparoscopy. We did two, and it was really kind of impossible because from the time I got my period, I never knew how to learn about my period. So it was okay for me that I have it every 28 days. It was super exact, but it was super painful. I even sometimes lose consciousness from the pain. I had to get oxygen, and my, like my mom, and nobody taught her. So she even told me that that was not okay for her. What's normal, you know? And for me, it was normal. So and then the doctor says, "Well, you know, we need to really start hard. You need to go to a reproductive endocrinologist. You are 32. Your clock is ticking," which I hate that. And I real I realized through the years of experience in my personal opinion that yes our ex age with us there is no there is no way around that is truth but at the same time i think that age is a, a myth because if we take care of ourselves you know lifestyle certain things that we use i'm not saying don't go crazy it's good to have fun in life but also be measured you know have balance we can get pregnant no matter at what age i have seen clients uh, 28 years old, a case specifically one, she suffered from uh, diminished ovarian syndrome, you know, and they discovered that at 28, she has eggs of a 60-year-old woman. So she eventually needed to go with egg donor. That's why I tell you age is a myth. So, of course, I got paranoid. I didn't know nothing. We didn't know what was IVF. We jumped into that. Uh, I was terrified. I was uh, hopeless. Because, you know, the fact that you don't get pregnant naturally is kind of uh, like something is wrong with you. So I felt defeated. I felt defective. I felt that my body was not responding to, to me. I felt that my body was not the perfect machine that it's supposed to be. And we jumped into that. We went to a reproductive endocrinologist that my gynecologist recommended. Amazing doctor. We had to wait like four hours, but he was very kind. And I like to see that kindness. 
and, and compassion because it's a very sensitive issue. And he was. So I like that. I read, you know, I said, okay, so should I wait for hours? That's okay. But this guy, at the same time, when he takes the time to be with me and my husband, he stays four hours explaining and dedicating his time. So we went to him. And he was very honest. He said, listen, you produce, you have a wonderful production of eggs, your hormones and in the levels. I don't think why it's not going to work, but I cannot tell you it's going to work. So all this uh, kind of encouragement from him, I guess, also did something emotionally and mentally on me. And somehow I kind of focused on that is going to work. And it did work. It's now my 15-year-old daughter. But in that time, nobody told us that we could freeze the remaining embryos. Are you or someone you know struggling with infertility or pregnancy loss? Shop Infertile Millennial is a dedicated gift shop to show your support, send a little sunshine, remind yourself of the warrior in you, or offer encouragement to someone you know struggling with infertility. Gifts for those grieving pregnancy loss, experiencing infertility, or going through fertility treatments to remind you of your strength and bravery. Shop now at www.infertilemillennial.com. Oh, so you... So you had, so I want to back up for just a second, um, because you mentioned to me that when you started your IVF journey, that you transferred four embryos at one time. So, and, and I don't know how it is in every state, but where I'm at, um, we can only, he will not let us transfer more than two. So I don't know if things have changed since then. But yeah, absolutely. This time around, when I first started, actually, my doctor was like, I think you should only do one. And we went with two and we still didn't get pregnant. This time now, he's like, you have to do two because clearly something weird's going on. And so he's making us do, or not making us, but encouraging us to do the higher amount. But I'm curious, um, was there any reason why they had you transfer four? Or is it was that just a choice of yours? Or did they tell you to transfer all of them? Yes, I go there. So what happened is the following. Definitely medical technology and medical advance has been changing and becoming better through the years. Uh, you have today PGS testing. You have other options. Medicines are different. And today, yes, Emily, you are right. Today, in most countries in the world, they transfer one, maximum two. Uh, and it seems that it's been working, either in fresh cycle or either in frozen cycle. And I think it's because of that advance in technology, medical technology, uh, medicines that stimulate more. And of course, the fact that they have found solutions to treat uh, more uh, detailed uh, fertility issues in men or women. 15 years ago, uh, first of all, there was no social media like there is today. Uh, medicines were... Uh, kind of the same, but the probabilities of getting pregnant with only one were very low. So in that time, there were maximum two or three. Uh, we really pushed our doctor to transfer the four. We kind of, and he was a little bit concerned. However, um, he accepted because Again, my age, I was 32. So he say, you know, maybe it increased. And you know what? Fertilize one, my daughter. That's it. We put four, one, deep. Um, but definitely is the times change. And I think that today with one and, and two maximum, it's, it's enough from what I have searched. The thing is that, you know, we did transfer four. And from the retrieval, I got 39, 14 fertilized. We oh, transferred okay. four and means 10 embryos were there but because like i told you the doctor was so busy with the patients i think they forgot to mention to us that we could freeze the other embryos and we didn't know better and we didn't even google it so yeah. what happened is that we got pregnant our elia born and then we said so we're gonna do another ibf maybe when she's two we go to the same doctor and it's gonna work again i took it for granted I said, oh, if, she, if this works it's gonna mm -hmm. work so I basically suffered from primary infertility because my tubes are blocked. And then when we start the second cycle is when really that journey, that crazy, you know, path start. Because my second cycle, we went to the same doctor. And uh, in the middle of the cycle, the, he changed nurses. And the nurse, one of the nurses made a mistake with the chart of another patient. So the one of the nights that they called me, they gave me the dosage for another patient that needed way more than me. So what happened is that my hormones went to the roof. 
I got OHSS, my ovaries became balloony. I, I had pain like crazy and he realized and he said, listen, we need to cancel the cycle. We made a mistake. So this is all after your retrieval that this all happened. Is that when you got the OHSS or is this before? This second cycle is when they did the mistake. They gave me the wrong dose. I got OHSS and the cycle had to be canceled. So I, I didn't even got into a retrieval. Oh, wow. Because typically OHSS happens um, in between the retrieval and the transfer. So you got it way before you even got to retrieve any egg. Exactly. In my second cycle, we couldn't. It was crazy. I, I woke up the next day with a terrible sharp pain in my, uh, you know, abdominal area. I, you know, my husband and I called the doctor and he said that that's very strange that he's going to check on what happened and call us later. And like after an hour, he called and he said that unfortunately there was a mistake in the charts and they gave me the wrong dose of medicine and it's supposed to be to another one. It was my husband pissed off. I got very oh, upset, yeah. you know, and, and, and we thought about suing him and all of that. But listen, by suing someone is not going to give me back what I did. So we chill and he he was amazing. And he said, you know what? We need to wait at least three months for my body to, to you know, detox from all of that. And he's going to do a next cycle, no charge at all. And he's going to give us the medicine up to the point that was suspended that was canceled so we didn't have to pay anything except for the rest of the medicine so we waited it was very frustrating I cried my eyes out because you know I was like I'm thinking that it's over but it wasn't so we waited three months we went back to him we did a cycle with him uh in that time I think we retrieved about 24 uh, eggs came into blastocyst I think it was five there was no remaining embryos and we send them to uh, testing because we wanted a boy. So by doing that, you know, they test all the chromosomes and everything together. So from that five embryos came three boys, super good quality, the, uh, two AA embryos and two girls. One of the girls was chromosomic, had a chromosomic issue. So he'd recommend to discharge that and then to transfer the three boys and freeze the girl. Even though the, the other girl was like five days or six days, a little bit slow behind. So my husband says, no, we want to transfer the fourth. And I'm like, but we want boys. And he says, it's only one girl, forget it. Go, we went to transfer the four. And the one that I got pregnant was the girl. She was the one that, and you know, it's funny. Genetically, it's been proven that females, we are stronger. It's, it's like, is that. That's why I guess there is more women in the world than guys. <laughs> I think that's so funny that, yeah, she was the one who was a little bit behind, but then she's the one who took. But they do they do say that sometimes the grade or the way they look before entering the body doesn't really have a, like once it's in the body, it only, it's like it needs that environment to thrive. So sometimes in a Petri dish, it's like, yeah, it might not look that great, but once it gets in that environment is when it really takes off. Absolutely. And you know why? Because the, the Petri dish is only 99% environmentally uh, good as it is the uterus. There is never 100% as our body. So that 1%, once the embryo is transferred, can play a big role in the embryo to be attached and develop into a pregnancy. Definitely, yeah. definitely. So we went into a pregnancy. I was 37 in that time. And then uh, everything was okay. I needed to do an amniocentesis, again, because of age, uh, to find out, you know, trisonomy. And also through the amniocentesis, when they take the amniotic liquid from our belly uh, after a woman is 35, they can find other issues that the baby can come up with, you know, like uh, the spinal cord is uh, torn or something. Babies that born like that, they born alive, but they don't last few hours there's no way to so all of that we went to the amniocentesis which is very painful it's like a needle like this that they put in your belly and take uh... how far along are you when you have to do that test uh, that test needs to be done between week 20 to week 24 no more or no less than that so the baby basically is complete so we did it everything came good but through through that moment, I guess, I was developing a clothing issue with my blood and nobody knew. Uh, I was taking aspirin, baby aspirin up to certain point, like we did in my first cycle. 
and then he suspended because everything seems okay. So when I was, the baby used to move a lot. She was very active baby. So about cl getting close to uh, week 39, we went to the pictures, you know, that you take the pregnancy pictures and all of that. And that Saturday, actually, that Saturday was uh, October, I think, 2nd. Yes, second. It was October 2nd, 2010, Saturday. We went to do the, the shoot, the photo shoot, and that the baby was not moving. She didn't move. And I told my husband, I told Shai, listen, the baby's not moving. I'm worried. And then he said, but remember, it happens with Elia, with our first pregnancy. And, you know, because it was the first one, we went to the hospital and she was sleeping, but she was there, you know. And he said, listen, don't, don't get so paranoid. It happens. Maybe the baby's sleeping. Let's finish this. And, you know, we move on. So we did the, the, the truth. Then the Sunday, you know, I was kind of confused. I felt some air. I got confused if it was movement or not. And then the following Tuesday, I had my regular appointment in the gynecologist. And he was thinking that that day I will be induced. So we went with my mom because my husband was at work. And as soon as we get in, she start to do, you know, the sonogram and measure and the head is good. And then I told her, listen, I want to see the heartbeat. I have something, you know, like I felt that something was not right. And she started to look for it and she didn't find it. So she said, hey, give me a second. I'm going to call the doctor. When she said that, I knew that she couldn't find it. So I was in the bed, you know, and I just blew all. They had to hold me like you know, like in a crazy house. My mom came. I don't know how my husband was there. Like 10 minutes later, the doctor came and uh, he said, yes, there is no, no heartbeat. We, you know, we need to, she needs to go and deliver. And um, the doctor told me, you know, I, I have few C-sections today. Can you come tomorrow? And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? I, you, you pretend me to go to my house knowing that my baby is dead and, and sleep with her there? There is no way you take this baby out now, now. So we, he even, I couldn't drive. My husband couldn't drive because it was a shock. He drove us to the hospital and I had to deliver my baby dead, you know? And then right there, when as soon as she came out, we saw my husband, because I was lying, he saw in the umbilical cord two big blood clots. So that was basically what happened. I, I don't wish this to anyone. In our journey, a loss is a loss, no matter how far you are from it. You can be a few weeks, you can be an advanced pregnancy is a loss, is that hope of what you wanted and it couldn't happen. So, and the more advanced is the pregnancy or the more age is a child, the loss of a child has no name. You know, you lose your husband, you are a widower or widow, you lose your parents, you are an orphan, but what is the name when you lose a child? There is no name like the biggest heat and pain in my life you know you are prepared and 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 and, and then my five-year-old what we're gonna say we are jewish so my husband called a rabbi because the hospital says you know we can do a necropsy and find out the the cause and my gynecologist says there is no need to find the cause there is blood clots in the biblical cord i need you to do a test on her for phospholipid or throm thromboembolic issues because that's what is the cause and our rabbi said not to do it you know it's a baby it doesn't belong to us actually it belongs more to the universe to god than to us and um because in our religion we, for for sitting shiva or to uh, hold a funeral um a person an individual a human needs to be alive 30 days otherwise there is no sitting shiva and it doesn't belong to us belongs to god so I don't see Shiva, I don't know where she is buried, and my rabbi will take care of that. So he, do, he did that. Of course, I saw my baby. You know, they asked me to come. And I know this is a very sensitive issue, sensitive point, but you know what, Emily, a lot of women go through this, and they think they are the only ones because I've been there, and we don't talk about it. And it's so necessary to talk about it because it's part of the grieving. If we don't talk about it, we carry a big weight in our bags for years, and it's important. Grieving is a process. It's a process of denial. It's a process of, that's the first one. You are in denial. You don't want that to happen. You think it's a nightmare and you just want to wake up and have your baby in your arms. And after the denial is the process of kind of move on with your life. Um, and it's either you move on or either, yes, you move on. 
and you move on either by living life, continue living it, or you just don't live that life because the pain is stronger than the motivation of continuing. The following content is for mature audiences only and may be seen as graphic and is not suitable for all listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or head to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. So it was crazy. They brought my baby. I wanted to unwrap it and my husband told me no. And I say, but I want to make sure that she's complete. You know, he said she's complete, but because it was more than 20 hours that she was dead. So her skin was started peeling. It was not a nice thing to see. So, uh, and then I stayed five minutes with her. He couldn't hold it. He couldn't see her. He was just, they took her and I stayed one night in the hospital, came the next day, you know, I had to wrap my breast because I had milk, had to start to process to like dry all that hormones. And it was a nightmare. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I look, I looked up into the options of not continue living. I thought to, I, I had suicidal thoughts because the pain is very, very hard. There is, you know, like you cut yourself and it, you know, it's closed and it's this. So, and I tell people, it's funny to say now, but I tell what saved me not to get into that way is that I am very scared from physical pain. To love, it's very, very scared. So if I cut, you know, like I'm like, oh. and don't get me wrong, you know, I, I have a few surgeries, you know, through the years, whatever here, and, but it's different. You know, so I went into look of whatever possible way to end my life that that didn't involve physical pain. And the only one that I found was not a legal one. And then my mind goes into all how it will be done. And and then I, I thought, okay, so let me try. If I do this, that is not legal. Then and then I say, okay, so what if I'm half? They caught me. I go to jail. Then I'm gonna be in jail with pain. And then nothing doing like I'm tied up because probably gonna think I'm crazy. So all of that, I'm grateful for that because it stopped me. And somehow the healing took a while, took a while. And doesn't mean that I forgot. You know, the scar is there. But uh, through the years and, and through, you know, when you are in cheat, I'm going to be very, you know, clear and open. When we are in cheat, we have two options. Either we choose to suffer and be all, you know, uh, wrapping that shit or either we just kind of say that's it i have a life i have another daughter i cannot be that selfish i feel that um that's something i learned about grief is you know obviously you have to take the time to heal but there will come a point where you're like okay i can't keep living this day after day i need to do something to heal from this or i need to do something to move forward and so you know everyone will find their own way of moving forward but for me it was like i need to go talk to a counselor because i'm not getting anywhere by trying to you know i I think i started actually like meditating for a while and i started yoga but then i was like even that's not quite helping me yet so for me it was i think i need to talk to somebody who's experienced a miscarriage so i found a counselor who had experienced a miscarriage and that has absolutely changed everything from like i don't know how many months ago seven months ago just completely changed everything and so i think you do have to get to that point of like okay i can't keep living this day over and over and over again i have to figure out how to move on absolutely absolutely so i kind of sit and said and 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 my mom and my husband told me it's very selfish the way that you are thinking but if that's the solution that you think it's gonna be it's up to you you know it's up to us so it was healing i start to kind of move on don't get me wrong if i will laugh Sometimes I will say, why I'm laughing? I just lost a child. You know, you have that guilt inside. It's, and like you said, every one of us is, takes, it's, for everyone is different time. If for you, the healing could be 24 months. For me, it could be three months. It took years of ups and downs and on and off. Uh, And then what happened is that, but during that grieving, part of that grieving was like, okay, what is, what is something that is going to heal me faster, right? You always want to think that. So for me, it was like, 
I need to fill this empty space. I need that baby. So I, I, I start to tell to my husband as soon as I finish to dry my milk and, and to recover in, in a month and a half, in two months, we're going to do another IVF. And he was like, two months, you can't do it in two months. You still have medicines. You are recovering. Your hormones are a mess from the medicine, from the fact of that you are a mom, from your milk, from everything. So he was very against. So I reached to our doctor, to our RE, and he was very clear. He said, I'm so sorry, but I don't think you emotionally and mentally are prepared to another IBF. It can bring a miscarriage. It can bring something because you need to be kind of in a different place physically and emotionally. So I got upset on him. And uh, eventually he recommended me a doctor, friend of his. And he said, go to him, but I, I'm not going to do it. We went to him, it's RMA of New York, Dr. Mukherjee, and he attended us, me and my husband. We, we spent like three hours talking to him, and that three hours he was trying to convince me to the same. You are not ready. This is not, you know, if it would be about the money, great. You are another client, another patient, but it's not about that. You are a wreck, in other words. He told. Forget it, Emily. I put this doctor and my husband against the wall, probably with a gun, an imaginary gun. The guy's, okay, we're going to do it. So we jump a month and a half later into another IVF, and I got pregnant, but I miscarried at seven and a half weeks. So, so one after another one, another emotional wreck, you know, like, and then my marriage started to kind of crumble because each of us grieved differently. So I was crying my eyes out every day, and my husband just went back to work, and he showed no, like, no tears, nothing, nothing. So I was kind of, what is wrong with you? You know, you don't cry. You just lose a baby and you're just a piece of stone there. Yes, I actually, um, that was one of the biggest arguments. My husband and I, I like to say we don't argue very often, but we do argue about important things. And obviously IVF and miscarriage is a big thing. And I had that same experience. I would say one of our biggest fights, and not just once, but like, you know, it's one of those things where you have to keep talking about it days after days. And I, I feel like I'm on the same page as you is where it seemed like it didn't affect them at all. Not that they didn't get upset at, in the beginning, but it was like they could just move on so easily. And that was an argument that we had. And uh, number one, what my therapist told me was, well, to be fair, we as women did experience more than they did. We had that physical connection. We witnessed actually miscarrying. Our bodies physically had to do it. They never experienced that pain. They did experience the emotional side of it, but we did lose more in a sense, not lose more, but we definitely went through more. So we are probably more upset and that's fair to say because we truly did go through a little bit more than they did. But also, I think men think that they have to be strong or they, they don't want to show emotion because they don't want you to get upset and they want to be there for you. And so that's sort of what came out of that is my husband was like, okay, I didn't realize I should be showing my emotion. I thought that I should be strong so that you can be emotional and you can get over this and grieve but I was like, no, I think it's really important for you to share what you're going through too. How does it feel for you? Verbalize that, communicate that with me. That's how we were able to kind of move past that. Absolutely. You are so right. On, uh, in every single word that you said, that is what it is. And then what happened is that you just said it's cultural beliefs. Unfortunately, and this is nothing to do with religion or where you are coming from. It has to do with the fact of being male or female and in general in, in the world the you know we have been uh, taught through generations from our ancestors that men don't cry that men is the provider that men is the strength and he don't show emotions and women is the opposite and through the years we are learning that is not true we all have our female and male um, forces you know so women we have it more our estrogen levels are higher than the testosterone and men too however when it comes to this kind of thing communication is very important so 
one night he came drunk like hell. I don't know how even he drove all the way here. And then what I realized is um, he went to this restaurant that we go all the time, Greek people, very nice, and they saw me pregnant. So one of the afternoons, uh, he just finished to visit customers and he went there and he just asked for wine and he was drinking wine like there was no tomorrow. And then the lady came to him and, and asked him and he just started to cry to her and they didn't let him come until he eat. And then he came and he talked to me and he told me that it was very hard on him, but he was very scared to cry. And still up to today, he don't like to talk about that. He's telling me that, you know, this is not belong to me. It's past that kid, that child was belonged to God. You know, you heal, I heal and that's it. But it's common. And that's something that upsets me because I think that our male force, our partners, masculine partners, need to learn to be a little bit more vulnerable and emotional. But still, our marriage kind of crumbled. We almost got divorced. And then we came to a point after that miscarriage that either we need to get divorced or either there is still love. If there is still love, so let's work on what we have. And we came to that agreement. Work on our relationship. We have a child. And let's value what we have. We don't need to look on what we don't have. We already have at least a child. Yes, I know it's not, we want another one and we would be complete with that, but let's work on what we have. So we dedicate a complete year on working on our relationship, you know, uh, our child, uh, my stepchild. And then a year later we said, okay, we're gonna do a last cycle, a fifth cycle. And it doesn't matter what is happening. If it works, beautiful. But if it doesn't, we decide we're going to stay with what we have, move on. You cannot be stuck in this, you know, all the life, like you say, yeah. every, every day. So we did um, a fifth cycle uh, with another RE close to our house. Now, RMA, which is the clinic that I had my fourth cycle, the miscarriage, took over this clinic. But in that time, they were independent. And we went with a beautiful doctor. We had... Um, I think eight embryos, uh, we transferred this time three. He himself says, please transfer only three. They are all good quality. I don't want, and, and I was already 41. We did, and uh, I changed also gynecologist because we moved to Long Island and it was closer. And this gynecologist is amazing. He recollect all the cycles that I went through. And at 20 weeks, he put me on blood thinners. So I was on blood thinners. Um... I was on a weekly checkup because it was a high risk from what happened the previous times. And then, you know, Maya was born at 37 weeks. I, I um, have a friend that she became a doula because the day that I had the stillbirth, she was there. And, and she got so uh, sensitive with that that she said she wants to be a doula after that. Right. Yes, she became a doula and she was in my birth with Maya. I didn't use epidural. She taught me all the pregnancy, how to breathe. And this girl came in three minutes. It, was, it wasn't that painful like it's supposed to. And Maya actually healed me complete from, from the loss of Isabel. Uh, I believe strongly in the spirit babies. I believe strongly that we choose our parents. And you see, for example, for me, women that suffer from recurring uh, pregnancy loss, recurring miscarriages, and eventually they finally get pregnant and have that baby, that baby, that spirit have trying to come so many times. It's like, I want it to be my mom. I want it to be my mom. And they don't give up. It's true. I, I believe in that. I believe we choose. So when Maya born, I didn't see her first. It was my husband because it was 37 weeks and they wanted to make sure her lungs were working good because at that exactly time, 37 weeks, the, the babies have still kind of a mucus uh, a coverage in their lungs. So it was a big possibility that she needed to spend another three weeks in the NICU, but she was okay. She was okay. And then, you know, after they do all the things and cleaning, he brought her and put her on, on, on my chest. And I felt it was the same soul, different body, but same soul. And I felt like relief, you know, like I let her go because she's here. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I tell you something in that pregnancy from 
week 20, when she started to move up to the end, I didn't leave that baby alone. She, I didn't let her sleep a minute in my belly. If these girl, I learned so exactly to count the movements, even when I was sleeping, that if this girl was not moving between 2.30 in the morning and 2.40, I will wake up crazy, wake up my husband, tell him to bring me chocolate, orange juice or whatever, and make her move. So this girl is like an earthquake. She is all over. When she's at home, I have no time to do anything. It's all me. She healed me. And I was almost 42. And then that's it. You know, I said, and, and then I realized, I said, you know, I was alone. I felt defective. I felt I was the only one. And I start to think how many women goes through this. And it's not our fault. It's not that we are defective. It's the opposite. Our body is so perfect. Emily is so perfect that when our body finds something wrong, it talks to us and we don't listen because we don't know either how to listen or because we don't want to listen. I didn't listen because I didn't know. I didn't know. If I would have known today, I'm sorry, when I start to make a family, what I know today or even before I start to make a family, if I would known how our period is such an important uh, tool and role in our fertility, I wouldn't have gone through this, but my body was talking to me. So we are perfect. The fact that we cannot get pregnant or have fertility issues doesn't mean that we are broken. The opposite is, is our body is talking to us and we need to how, somehow find a solution. I decide to start to coach women. I decide to be an advocate. I decide to tell others that age is bullshit. <laughs> that I am, if I want to, I, I tell you, I know for a fact that if I will want to go now to do another in vitro at age 48, oh, I will get pregnant. I'm sure of that. There is no doubt. But of course I don't want now because I'm 48 and I need to also be a little bit thoughtful. If I'm going to have a kid now, I'm going to be 49 and my kid's going to be 10, I'm going to be what? 59, God forbid I die at 60, what, 10 year old without a mom? That's selfish, right? So I want to just be an advocate and tell others that there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing that you need to be ashamed, that there is a subject that we need to talk more about it. Uh, and that it's okay to feel upset. It's okay to express our feelings. Uh, it's not okay to pile them up. I am not with, you know, I, I hate toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to come and tell you, oh, chill. If you relax, you're going to have a baby. Or put the, the thoughts aside and just start to brainwash yourself with positive thoughts. No, it doesn't work like that. You need yeah. to cry. You need to grieve. You need to, if you need to curse to rant, you have to do it. Journal, color, have someone, a counselor, you know, scream. I, I my, my best thing to do is cry. For me, whatever little or big thing that comes to my life, my way to get it out and to clean and let go that feelings is cry. Cry to a point that I am feeling that I'm forcing the last tear and then I'm like, okay, I'm forcing some misery. Yeah. yeah, I really like um, to, when I'm feeling, I can always tell, because I just what you were saying, when you start going through infertility, you start kind of getting more connected with yourself, like mind, body, and soul. Like you start to really get an understanding of everything. You become more self-aware. So along this journey, I've started to become more aware of, oh, I'm feeling very anxious right now. I'm starting to get um, very uh, on edge and I get angry really easily. And then I realize like, okay, there's something I need to let out because I'm clearly feeling very emotional about something. So I love to sit down and journal and just whatever comes to mind, write it out. You can be swearing at someone, you can be crying about something, writing writing a letter to yourself or someone, and then whatever emotion comes through, that's kind of the emotion I'll let out. And then it feels really good because number one, maybe there's something you didn't realize you were upset about. Like it might not even have anything to do with fertility, but if it does, maybe there's a part of your fertility journey that you didn't realize like, oh, I'm actually really upset about this and I didn't even realize that upset me. So that's one thing that I've really liked about journaling is it makes me become more aware of exactly what is frustrating me or making me upset. And then I can kind of process that and release that. 
Exactly, because we need to process, we need to feel that feelings, we cannot pile them up. You know, th this, is, this is the problems of the world. People pile up things. They are not honest with themselves, they are not honest with others. So when journaling, when, that's one of my favorite things. That's why I wrote the IBF planner. It came from that too, from my own, you know, my own journey. Because you know how many, how much notes you need to take, the tests, the numbers, the beta, this, and then you also want to find a space for being a little bit away from that roller coaster. So, for example, the two-week wait is a very crucial time. I say it could be the most difficult time. However, let's see that after the two-week wait, you, you get a, a positive beta. It's even more stressful after that. Yes, you, you. but then the freaking what if, and every time you go to pee, you are checking that you are not spotting. So it's even worse. The whole thing from beginning to end, it's a challenge. It's a nightmare. There is, there is no other way to describe it. I don't lie to my clients. I said to them, if you're going to go the IBF way, you must be aware that it's not easy. By doing that, by accepting that it's not an easy path, you are already opening a little bit of ease in the journey. You cannot enter blind. Yes, I. it's funny. I found that you know, when you start IVF, you're like, okay, well, once I get here, I won't be as worried. Or, you know, once I find out that the embryos have been made, I, I'll be, I won't be worried. Or once we've transferred, I won't be worried. Or once I find out I'm pregnant, I won't be worried, but you're worried from the get-go. So that's something you have to be very much okay with of like, you're never going to feel completely calm and relaxed throughout this. You're going to be a little bit worried every step of the way. There is no finish line really I think that's the start of motherhood and then once they're born you're worried about them so it's like this is just the beginning <laughs> you know exactly exactly you just say it it's always okay yes you you got five embryos yes and then what what if by the transfer I get there and there is no embryos it's always a worry it's always a worry and I tell you something you just say it. once you are a mother then there is no sleep for the rest of your life I see it every day with my own mother. I'm 48. She lives with me. She's 70. And if I go to do an errand and it passed certain time that I am not getting back here, she starts to call me like crazy that something happened. Why you don't answer the phone? I'm, I'm 48. <laughs> so you know what? We, If we want really this, we go through all of that. We, we go through all of that. It's not easy. You are not going to sleep what? because you say, oh, it's going to stop when I have that baby in my arms. Oh, no. Then when you have that baby in your arms, you're going to check on that baby 10,000 times. You're going to have a little mirror to make sure they breathe. If they're sleeping on your belly, on the belly, you need to, you know, I, I was obsessed because of, you know, Sandra, uh, the sudden death, because it's always on, I am Latina, the, the, in Latino and African-Americans that sudden death is higher. So, you know, like you don't sleep. So it's something that you need to have clear and then it's going to help you through life. Yes. It's like when you start your journey, start practicing mindfulness. That's one thing that I've learned too. Because if we keep thinking about the, the future, we're going to get all this anxiety and we're going to get really nervous. You got to take it one day at a time. Like, okay, today I'm pregnant. That's that, you know, or we'll see what tomorrow holds, but today is here and that's all we have right now. And so that's something I'm even trying to be better about is today is the only day. There is no other days. It's just today. Today, the present moment is what you have. Then the other thing is don't let fear stop you unless that fear is going to protect you. And, and, and it makes sense how it works. So anyone that is going to start or, or thinking to start a journey of IBF, fertility journey, even trying to conceive naturally, it's always in the back of our mind. What if I don't get pregnant? What if I don't become a mom? So we are feeding our subconscious with very negative thoughts. Uh, and this is how we have been raised since hundreds of years. So we need to start to say, okay, I know that I'm getting into this very difficult journey, but what if it works? And if I'm getting into this difficult journey, is because it works. It works in so many, didn't work in many, but it works. So that's why people still do it. That's why medical advance is still grow. That's why there is 
more discoveries. So let's look into that bright side. What is what is what I can see that is giving me this option to become a mom, not only the, the, the crap. So we start to train our subconscious that way. Doesn't mean that as humans, we are not gonna have that feelings. We have them, and as you say, you journal. So when they come, and I have a friend that says that, every day is gonna bring a, a, a negative feeling. Why? Because that's life. Life is balanced. Bath exists because there is good, mm-hmm. you know? Um, brave people exist because there is some that terrorize us. It's sad to say, but that's life, it's balance. So this journey is freaking difficult, yes, but we need to embrace it, take it, you know, like when you take a dog with the chain from there and try to walk the best way possible. We need to learn to, to embrace the journey and embracing it is with all, with the positive and the negative. So I'd love for you to tell us um, where people can find you and also um, about your IVF planner, because I think that'll be really helpful. Absolutely. So the IVF planner, it's actually that a planner for anyone going through the journey uh, of IVF. It came from my own experience, from my own mess, because I used to have little papers and they were lost and I was like all frustrated. So... All came right after Maya, and then I start to, of course, building, like writing the story, my story, my journey, a little bit, uh, introducing people what IBF is. I'm not a doctor, you know, I want to make clear that, but from my own experience, I create the, the planner comes with some charts for whenever it comes your uh, order in cycle. So for your first cycle, uh, there is charts for, you know, journaling. The two-week wait uh, comes with uh, 14 mandalas, one for each day for coloring, because I learned also that art therapy helps you to relax and to kind of shift our mind without being forced to be shifted, you know, because you kind of focus on something and that you let your mind go without forcing it. I have all the tax and insurance information, a glossary. I have a, a chapter for when it comes multiple cycles, a chapter for when you have a positive result and what, you know, like what steps to follow after uh, for miscarriage or for negative results. And then, you know, what you can do. Some list of uh, resources and coaches and counselors that can help through, you know, through this, because this comes either with the win of having your baby, but it comes sometimes with multiple cycles until you get there. So they can find it in Amazon. It's only 127 pages. So if someone has an extra pages to, to write, they can even make a copy. I'm trying to, you know, work on a new edition that I can make it with put pages, but it's a little difficult. And um, that's what it is. So... You can find it on Amazon. So what would they search if they were looking for it, just in case? The IVF planner, and it's going to come up like that. The IVF planner by Monica Vivas. And hopefully I am trying to uh, work on the launch of my next book. It's not a book, actually. It's a coloring book. It's called Ranting Doodles. And it's all fertility related. So you're going to see like little sperms, cartoon (laughs) stories with the egg and all of that. Because like I tell you, coloring helped me a lot in my last cycle. They can find me, people can find me on Instagram, as you know, at Monica Vivas and uh, in my website, uh, which is www.monicavivas.com and Facebook. I have a group that calls the IVF Journey in Facebook and I do lives sometimes. I work more on my Instagram and I always say to people, if you want to DM me on Instagram, I always answer personally. Or if you want to send me an email, I do that. I also offer a discovery call for one hour because I don't like, you know, just to get with someone. I like to be like we are together and see if there is any connection when they are looking for help. So that's about me. Yeah, that's so amazing. I think definitely anybody who's listening should definitely go follow you. Um, Yeah, I have noticed you do go live I think quite a bit, but maybe it's, um, but it's always so helpful just to follow somebody else, um, especially somebody who's been through such a journey like your own. Um, I feel like you have a really good um, idea of how to cope with infertility and pregnancy loss and um, your journal sounds amazing. So I also believe anybody who's going through IVF should definitely look, check that out, see if it'll be uh, work for them. But 
Thank you so much for coming on here. It was so great talking with you. The same, the same. I feel the same. You're such yes. a sweetheart. Well, you guys, that wraps up our interview with Monica. If you are interested in following her, she is so inspirational and I'm sure you can learn a lot from her if you are struggling with infertility or fertility treatments or pregnancy loss. You can find her on Instagram at Monica Beavis. That's M-O-N-I-C-A-B-I-V-A-S. Again, I just wanted to reiterate that if you or someone you know is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or head to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. If you'd like to be a guest on a future Infertile Millennial podcast episode, make sure to send me an email at emily at infertilemillennial.com and I will see you guys in the next episode.